This is Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about what can be possible in our lives. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hi, welcome back to Lost or Found. On today's episode, we have Rabbi Eli Cohen on the show again to talk with us about Passover, as it's so rich in symbolism and meaning, as it brings up redemption. I'm always a little taken aback and moved by how profound he is, and well, he's gonna make you think. The other day, I was working on my night shift, and my colleague was leaving as I was coming on, and we started chatting. She was telling me that I had come up in a conversation and that it was noticed that I do my work and don't shirk from my duties or dump work on others. I'm an independent contractor working because I have to without benefits. And if you didn't know, I've been doing hospital night shifts since I gave up my medical career for the past year and a half to make ends meet as I work on this endeavor which I can't exactly name. I don't bring this up to self-congratulate myself as a broken doctor in our broken healthcare system, but it brings up several points. Not everyone works hard or does their work. And to be honest with you, doctors are no different. Just because you have a big sounding degree behind your name doesn't mean you do good work. It's up to the individual. There are some doctors who don't do their work, which leads to another question. When they do their work, do they do it well? Isn't this true everywhere across all fields? Early in my career, I realized that there were things that I could not control in a patient's course and outcome. I had thought that if I did the right thing for the patient, they would get better and all would be better. But that's not always the case. It's not always that simple. Sometimes things happen that we cannot control nor anticipate when people are sick enough to require hospitalization. We can only try to help, but we can't necessarily control everyone's outcome. However, whenever my patient had a bad outcome, It drove me crazy and it depressed me. And I suffered in silence as I continued to despise myself. And so I was driving home one day when I recognized the same pattern and my self-abuse. I had an aha moment as I lay my head on my pillow that the only thing I could control is trying my best for that person and their care. It was the only way in which I could close my eyes at night. I may not be able to control that person's body, their health, or their outcome, but I needed to know every day that I've tried my best to help them. It's the only way in which I can live with myself in my chosen work. But in this particular situation, I found it kind of funny that they noticed my work ethic because I'm pretty clear with everyone that I'm only working night shifts for the money. Everyone in the ER knows that if I didn't need the money, my ass wouldn't be there. But my ass needs the money right now to support the endeavor which I can't exactly name. 
The money offers me time to develop. Working nights in the hospital is a very lonely place. All the other doctors are at home. I chose this. It's only me, the hospitalist, and the ER doctor working together in the night. My shifts are 12 hours long. I'm responsible for all the decision-making for the hospitalized patients and for those that need to be admitted into the hospital from the ER. It's hard being up at 3.29 a.m. talking with patients in the ER and then looking at a computer screen to write my notes and put in my orders. And sometimes it's so incredibly busy and overwhelming in the hospital when your body naturally just wants to lay supine. I can understand why there's so much sugar everywhere as emotional eating becomes the unwanted reality. But I try to be very cognizant as I remind myself that shoving sugar down my gullet isn't going to solve any of my problems. I don't love this job. I also don't hate this job. I hated primary care, but I really dislike doing night shifts. Recovery from a night shift is hard. The funny part to me is that I do my best because I'm going to quit when I can, but I'm not there yet. So yes, even at this job that I really dislike, it's important to me that I try my best because doing my best affects someone else's life as well as my own. But what I thought was a doctor thing for me maybe is a human thing. As a human, it's really important for me that I try my best. I chose to start a podcast and I really want to make sure with whatever happens that I've tried my best. And I noticed that my best from over a year ago is different from my best now. Somehow, I've grown in the process, and my best now is better than what it was in January 2021. Initially, I thought doing my best was so that I could put my head down on my pillow at nighttime. Something I read recently made a lot of sense to me. I read Don Miguel Ruiz's The Four Agreements a second time. It was actually more profound to me reading it the second time than the first. He recommends as one of the tenets in life that you always do your best. And he writes that when you do your best, it leaves less room for self-judgment. I find that to be so true when we all know we are our own biggest asshole. Don't you sometimes wonder if we waste more time when we don't do our best with the cover-up and the shirking, and what I would imagine the guilt, conscious or unconscious. Self-judgment can be so awful, but if we've done our best, there's really not much you can judge. It's just what is. He also writes that by doing your best, it makes you live your life more intensely. When you do your best, you take action. Taking action is being alive. It's taking the risk to go out and express your dream, and everyone has the right to express their dream. And by doing our best, can we learn to accept ourselves? You can only be you when you do your best. And when you don't do your best, 
It's like denying yourself the right to be you. I feel this as I work nights in the hospital and I work on the podcast and the book. I also can't necessarily control the outcome of the book or the podcast. But if I've tried my best and it's something that I feel I would read or listen to, then, well, what else can I say? At this point, I'm doing it. I work on it. I'm truly trying and I'm putting my heart in these projects because what's the point of having a message if you're not going to be real? Anyway, I know I'm going to be okay. But while doing my best is important to me, I've also decided to do something that I find really scary and crazy. I don't feel like I need to judge myself because I'm trying in my journey. And because I'm trying, I don't feel that I have any regrets at this point in my life, even when I have no idea what's going to happen. And whatever the outcome, I'm going to be okay. I hope that you do your best too, or do something where you can try your best. And I hope that you choose to live without regrets. Passover is a holiday that is centered around the retelling of the biblical story of the Jewish people being freed from slavery in Egypt. The holiday is so rich in symbolism as it incorporates themes of springtime, homeland, family, Jewish history, social justice, and freedom. The central ritual of Passover is a Seder, observed on each of the first two nights of the holiday, which is the ritual-packed feast with symbolic foods intended to help the Jewish people relive God's great redemptive act. The overarching theme of Passover is redemption, the divine redemption of the Israelites for the understanding of God, divine morality, and ethics. I'm really honored to have Rabbi Eli back on the show to talk with us about redemption and renewal, as we all can think about how we can celebrate our freedom and the profound meaning it has on all of our lives. Hello, Rabbi Eli. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to chat with you again. And hello, Michelle. It's good to see you again. I really enjoyed the last time we visited. Definitely. It was like such a beautiful and wonderful conversation. It certainly was. I thought about it for a long, long time afterwards. (laughs) Thank you. And as we start our conversation, would you mind telling our listeners about yourself? Well, um, my name is Eli Cohen. I'm a rabbi in Santa Cruz for a congregation called Chodesh which means Renew Our Days. It is a Jewish renewal congregation. progressive, but rooted in strongly in Jewish tradition. And uh, we have a a little shul, it's called, a little uh, space to gather in downtown Santa Cruz, not far from Trader Joe's and Abbott Square and that whole area. And uh, it's a very sweet congregation that has been meeting since the early mid-90s. How wonderful. And especially with someone as thoughtful as you are, I think. I can't imagine what you're doing for everyone else as well. (laughs) Oh, bless you. Thank you. And what does, and as we start our conversation today, what does Passover commemorate? 
So Passover is perhaps the quintessential Jewish holiday. It's at our origins, really, um, called Pesach in Hebrew. Um, it, um, in a nutshell, commemorates the freedom of our ancestors from slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, because it really is the paradigmatic event in our history, it is constantly finding new meaning uh, and uh and really being renewed even as we continue to tap into uh, what it means traditionally. So what does it mean to be freed from slavery? What is the responsibility that goes with that? Uh, What do we mean even when we say things like redemption? Um, And, uh, you know, because it takes place in the spring, it's also sometimes called the spring holiday, Mm -hmm. Uh, very much has to do with renewal and uh, rejuvenation, particularly collectively. Uh, Yeah, there's so much to be said about it. It really sounds almost like a rebirth as well, like the reminder. It certainly is. I mean, you know, in nature itself, springtime certainly represents that. So perhaps it is no coincidence that um, the the holiday of rebirth and renewal takes place in the springtime. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, one of the several scriptural readings that we have, it's called a Haftarah, reading from the prophets, uh, is um, the vision of the valley of the dry bones that comes back together. Uh, So it certainly is about rebirth and renewal and, um, yeah. And I really love the basic storyline as well. You know, when the Jewish people were, um, I guess, in slavery to the Egyptian pharaoh, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And it was when God released the Jewish people from slavery. Yes, right? yes. Um, it, you know, is such a, a powerful story. I mean, we <laughs> that you can see it play out in so many ways. It's not surprising that it was really um, an inspirational story for the African-Americans who were enslaved in this country, mm-hmm. And it continues to um, inspire so many. Uh, one of the traditions of Passover uh, is that we have what's called a Seder, um, a ritual meal on the first night or sometimes the first two nights of the holiday. And uh, it includes a telling and an exploration of some of the aspects of this uh, slavery and freedom and a particularly modern, but really for a long time, a tradition has evolved to uh, keep renewing the the story itself. The story is told in a little booklet called a Haggadah, which means the telling. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think it is the most... I don't, can't think of the word, the most diverse set of books in the Library of Congress is the Passover Haggadah because there are so many ways that it has been reproduced, whether it be with accompanying pictures or uh, supplemental stories because you can imagine it being applied in so many situations. There's a feminist Haggadah that emerged during the feminist movement. There are uh, Haggadahs that um, uh, focus on one or another um issue of social justice. Uh, there was even a very special Haggadah one can still obtain called the Santa Cruz Haggadah. I think they still sell it down at Bookshop during uh, this season. What's that, the Santa Cruz Haggadah? Yeah, it's a very Santa Cruz style of uh, telling the traditional story. The mm-hmm. Haggadah does have a set um, 
way of telling the story, uh, but it's often supplemented mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes made a little bit more accessible to people or maybe more fun at times for children and so forth because you, you want to encourage uh, questioning and, mm -hmm. and questions uh, about the story and about the meaning. And so this particular one was also accompanied by some very... Um, uh, creative and fun uh, drawings and animations that are, are in that particular Haggadah. I think that's really beautiful because when you make it more relatable, the story can be told and people can listen perhaps even a little bit better. That's right. Yeah, for communication. And we all want to find ourselves in a story. Um, and so even if it's a story about the other, uh, empathy and and just being able to relate to it makes all the difference mm -hmm. uh, and so you know look at the story of ancient israelites thousands of years ago being freed from slavery there's many such stories i think what makes it powerful one of the many things that makes it powerful is the ability for people to see themselves in that story which is why it's still so current for example it's pretty hard not to see what's going on uh, in Eastern Europe, for example, mm -hmm. not see um, see the same forces at play, a pharaoh, as it were, and uh, people trying to uh, maintain their freedom, you know. Um, yeah, I think that's some of what makes it so very, very, very powerful. For us, it really is the story that kind of defined our beginnings. Mm -hmm. And so while Jews may often... Uh, argue about uh, the meaning and see different ways of understanding what the uh, what the story means to us. Nonetheless, it continues to remain relevant and alive and inspiring, and um, and so we're always finding ways to to bring it into a new application and to see you know why it uh, still motivates us. Here's another example. Mm -hmm. Our particular community, Chereshimenu, has been trying increasingly to uh, support uh, an organization locally called the Welcoming Network, uh, which is really uh, an organization that's trying to help uh, refugees and, and people who have been coming into our community and needing help. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's real practical help on... Uh, things they need for day-to-day -day life, or maybe housing and so forth. And so for our, uh, I guess for our, our, what we call Tikkun Alam healing project, uh, social action project for this year for Passover, we are um, choosing to support the Welcoming Network. At the beginning of the Seder, of the ritual meal, there's a line that says, let all who are hungry come and eat. And so... Once again, each of these phrases and, and places in the Seder can call us to, um, to action or to be our better selves. And that's an example that all are hungry, come and eat. One year it might be interpreted for us as maybe we need to support hunger issues, pretty straightforward. For many years, and we still do, uh, support the unhoused in our community, you know, mm -hmm. calls on it. In fact, one year, very grateful to uh, a church that I think is no longer around, but we did a uh, an interfaith Seder wh where we invited so many people who uh, didn't have homes to join in that Seder, because that was the work they were doing very mm -hmm. powerfully. I love what you say. You were saying earlier that Passover represents the beginning, but I think it's so relevant that it, 
it really helps define how we live and it can define our ending as well. And hopefully not our demise, but <laughs> it's so powerful. Well, you tapped into something that would be worth mentioning also. Um, because this uh, is about being redeemed from slavery, mm-hmm. one of the many themes that we find traditionally in Passover is called redemption, which is a hard word in modern English, what that even means and what we mean by it. Uh, you know, Most Americans, if they grew up with redemption, the concept of redemption, it may be meant turning in uh, bottles and cans for recycling. That's redemption. Or some older, uh, some of us who are older might remember uh, the the triple S blue uh, green stamps or S and H blue stamps, where you would redeem stamps for prizes or something. Um, but redemption obviously means a lot more than that. And in fact, when um, Moses is called to the calling um, by God at the burning bush, there are several terms that are used that are almost four different types of ways of saying this concept. One is redeem, one is save, one is rescue, for example. And um, and so because there were four different ways that term was being used, uh, there are traditionally four cups of wine that mm-hmm. are at the Passover Seder, one uh, for each of those terms, each representing a different understanding of redemption. In addition, there's also the concept of uh, future redemption, that there will always be this light calling to us to uh, work towards the redeeming of the world to be a better place. So Passover, interestingly, for most Americans use that, it, they all know it. They, they all observe it pretty much in some way, even the most assimilated. But what many of them don't know or remember is that it is actually the beginning of a seven-week, 50-day period mm-hmm. um, in the Torah, in the Bible. There's a holiday called Shavuot, the festival of weeks, that comes seven weeks afterwards. The word for week and the word for seven are basically the same word in Hebrew. So seven times seven and then add a day, the 50th day. In Christian um, tradition, it came to be called Pentecost. Um, what it is for us, the festival of Shavuot, is the commemoration of receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. And so um, in, in the rabbinic mind in the, and in the biblical mind, you cannot separate Passover from Shavuot. Uh, the liberation causes a process by which we have to learn to live with freedom and the responsibility that comes with that. And so if Passover represents our liberation um, and freedom, Shavuot represents revelation, because we received the Ten Commandments, and responsibility. So they're tied in together. Uh, Traditionally, Shavuot is seen as almost an end point of that period that begins with Passover. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because sometimes when we receive something, we think that's the end, but that's like only the beginning. <laughs> right, right. It's a little bit like uh, perhaps a graduation from high school. Is yeah. that the end or a beginning, right? It's another right? door, yeah. Exactly, it's another door. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one uh, concept that comes up also, again, Passover is old. It's really rich in meaning and symbolism. And then there's been the... Uh, interpreted um, uh, traditions and so forth over so many years uh, and so many generations. But one thing to remember is that in Hebrew, and I believe in Arabic too, the word for Egypt comes from the word for narrow. 
because probably um, in Egypt, the bulk of the civilization has always been along the narrows mm -hmm. of the Nile, a uh, very life-giving force in Egypt and, uh, you know, central to mm -hmm. Egyptian civilization, ultimately to world civilization. So the narrows. But for a people that were um, enslaved and oppressed by that great civilization, the narrows represent something very, very different, very constrictive and oppressive. And so um, the exodus from Egypt is really exiting the narrow place uh, into a place of greater um, awareness, a place of expansion, which is why you go from the narrows to the symbolic uh, revelation at Mount Sinai, the receiving mm -hmm. of the Ten Commandments. It's a place of mind expansion as well. Like the journey. The journey. It's very much a journey. It's this, uh, of course, here, it's this 49-day, 50-day journey. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the idea of exiting a narrow place, certainly in modern times, the expression to come out of the closet, for example, to go from a place of uh, restrictive oppression into a place of expansion is something that uh, not only do we learn from the LGBTQ community, but just in general, that concept of going into a, a, a broader perspective, uh, a, a place of freedom. Mm -hmm. But once again, freedom comes with a responsibility. Yeah. Don't you sometimes think like people give up on the journey way too soon? I do. I do. Um, there were many, they say, who didn't make it out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. right? On the other hand, there were many who joined as well that uh, weren't Israelite. There was a mixed group. I do. I think many people give up sometimes on the journey or forget um, that it's not even so much an endpoint, but the journey itself. Yeah. yeah. It's what changes you. Yes. Yeah, uh, really, in many ways, and we all know this, it isn't necessarily just so much reaching uh, the goal, but it's uh, perhaps turning to the goal mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, we don't know the steps along the way sometimes. Yeah. You know, later in the Israelite story, of course, we have the um, wandering through the desert, and they didn't always know where they would be going next or even um, when. Mm -hmm. uh, the biblical story is that there was a... a pillar of uh, cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that um, hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. And when the, the fire or the cloud really lifted and started moving, then they'd know that it was time to lift and move. And when it settled, they would settle. But they never knew when it was. Mm -hmm. So imagine you have to be ready to go at the drop of a dime, but it could be two or 40 years from now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to listen and to see, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It's really, I think, the process. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder, like, sometimes when there's so much unknowing and uncertainty in the process, like, it takes so much more than each of us mm -hmm. and maybe perhaps all of us and collectively, really, more than that, you know, yeah. like faith mm -hmm. yeah, to carry you through and to see and listen for all those signs. I think you've really hit the nail on the mm -hmm. head with that one. I mean, that's perhaps what the cloud was about. Having faith, uh, knowing that we don't necessarily know what the next step is, um, that we need each other, yeah, uh, to be open to the signs. Yeah. In another part of the Bible, um, much earlier in the story of Jacob, he awakes from a dream and says the famous phrase, God was in this place and I didn't know. I mean, the signs are there. Mm -hmm. Is how, how do we 
open our eyes to see them, or even earlier than that, the story of Hagar, who is cast off into the desert and desperate, and she cries out, and it says, or actually it says uh, her son cried out, and uh, then it says God opened her eyes and she saw a well, and the name of the well became uh, the well of the living one who sees me. Mm-hmm. That well, wasn't that there already? And she just uh, had her eyes opened. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. What does redemption mean to you? I was afraid you might ask that because <laughs> how would I know? <laughs> yeah. um, I'm one of those many people who has struggled with that term mm-hmm. and what it means. Again, there were four different terms used in the biblical story and that found its way into the Passover Seder. For me, sometimes it, um, sometimes anyway, it has a connotation of transformation of um, certainly a saving power of transformation, but a transformation. Um, And so the idea that we can truly uh, come through, we can come through stronger, and we can come through um, uh, transformed into a better people or a better self, you know. Um, And uh, sometimes it it may come simply as... uh, a nanosecond of awareness, and sometimes it may come through a lifetime of deep work and process. Mm-hmm. In a way, those things are not unrelated, and it's all by God's grace anyway, right, that any of this happens, but we're bidden to do constant work on our lives, always, always, always working on being better selves, turning towards the sacred at all times. And then uh, at the drop of a dime, it can all shift for the better or for worse. And it's, you know, our prayer that um, it shifts towards this place of redemption. Uh, in our prayers, uh, a central prayer every day, in fact, that we say twice a day every day, is called the Shema, which bears witness to the unity of all existence that we call God, or the unity behind and within all existence that mm-hmm. we call God. There are three blessings traditionally that surround it, two before and one after. The blessings before are blessings of uh, creation and revelation, sometimes called light and love. So creation and light, you can see the connection there, and revelation and love. Those are the two blessings that come before. But interesting, the blessing that comes after is called the blessing of redemption. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes say in our services, I pause before we do that prayer that comes after, which, by the way, comes from what's called the Song of the Sea, the song that the Israelites sang when they made their way to freedom uh, after crossing the Red Sea. So from that song, there's a particular prayer called the Micha Mocha. It's called the Prayer of Redemption. And sometimes I pause before it to say, imagine if we could sense even for just a split second, a moment, God's presence truly with us. The next moment is inherently redemptive. Mm -hmm. It's inherently transformative. I think that's some of where I go with it. And so redemption and transformation are always a process that we can connect with. I think that really makes sense to me because 
If we think about Passover and all the social injustices that the mm-hmm. Jewish people had to endure, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's a metaphor for life now, you know, because there's so yes. many social injustices yeah. and the war in Ukraine and systemic racism, everything, yes. right? Even climate change yes. and how we're harming humanity. But yes. the process of coming through for the better self, mm-hmm. I think that really makes sense to me if it's like a reminder to look at what's happened, what happened to us even on our own journey, mm-hmm. and to not just stop there. Like you were saying regarding one of the blessings, sometimes we stop at the blessing of creation, mm-hmm. but we don't go through the revelation or light and love. That's right. You know? Yes, I, I really think that um, it's helpful sometimes. In fact, I think maybe that's one of the many, many reasons we do prayer is, is really it's reminders all the time. Mm-hmm. I once had someone say to me, you know, I feel great after I do it. But then, you know, like a couple of days later, a week later, it's kind of like it dissipates. I'm like, hello, you know, you do eating every day. <laughs> <clears throat> that particular friend uh, I know did yoga pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, so it is with prayer. It's a constant practice. And one of the many reasons is to move it into a more regular consciousness. You know, these things, light and love or creation and revelation, for example. So we can get to a, a redemptive place regularly. Mm-hmm. Back to the Passover Seder, one of the interesting little uh, areas, it's always created a lot of discussion. You know, the Passover Seder is often about a lot of discussion. And that's partly because some of these things are challenging or interesting or troubling and uh some of them are little mysteries for us to explore. So one of the areas of the Passover Seder is called the four children, traditionally the four sons. And uh, it spoke of four types of children. Again, this is drawn from places in the Bible, uh, but four types of children who will see themselves as connected to this story or not. Mm -hmm. And so obviously it's meant to remind us of ourselves. So there's the wise child, you know, who says, what are the, you know, uh, the laws and rituals that we should engage in to keep connected? And you have the so-called, they call them the wicked child in most translations. And all of a sudden you can see why that's a problematic term, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes more loosely translated is the disaffected one or the alienated one or even the questioning one, Mm -hmm. right? Which is interesting because questioning is not wicked. In fact, it's highly... um, Uh, respected and valued in our tradition. But um, the second child often doesn't see themselves as connected with this and asks, you know, you know, why are you doing all this? You know, um, they don't already see themselves as part of this chain Mm -hmm. of, uh, of tradition. And so um, there's these four different childs. One is um, uh, (laughs) a simple child, Mm -hmm. you know, and one is one who doesn't even know how to ask. And so you're supposed to respond to them differently. You know, in other words, um, there are different doorways in, different ways of understanding what this whole story of redemption even means. And as we try and give it over, there are different uh, explanations, different ways to access, and everybody's pathway is a little bit different. And so we have to try and accommodate so that everybody has a way through. Yeah. That really, um, I find that very fascinating because even the so-called wicked child, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting it's viewed as children because it makes it so much more relatable because who doesn't love children or hopefully, you know. But even in the wicked child, that child is part of the whole, 
Yes. It's still playing with the other three. You know, and I think with the social injustices, if we think about it, their world is not different from ours. Like, even though we're not physically there, we are all connected and we can all convince each other and help each other. You have really tapped into, I think, what it's about. They're all essential. And that's why it's, it's while it's challenging, it's also fun to look at that. Who is this so-called wicked child? In some of the Haggadahs, they have beautiful drawings or explanations of who they might be. In one of them, clearly the wise one is the pious one and mm-hmm. dressed all piously. The so-called wicked one is the one who is challenging us to rethink. You know, what does it mean in a modern world for us to do this if we don't apply it to the place of injustice? You know, that child is really the questioning child and who's calling on us to do um, the sacred work of um, renewing and applying um, and living up to our values. Some say uh, these are not hierarchical at all Mm -hmm. um, because they're all just different aspects of ourselves or certainly uh, different aspects of who we are collectively. Um, The simple one, so, wow. There's nothing more important than keeping it plain and simple and pure and innocent because it is all about that. How about the one who doesn't even know how to form the question? Exactly. That's a very valuable place um, to be. It's a place beyond the dichotomy of a question and answer. Yeah. I mean, like, you're so right because we could be so judgmental that, oh, something happened somewhere else, but it doesn't happen here. Mm -hmm. But it's the question of the internal too. Like, if we were born all good, what would the what would be the point of being alive? You know, like obviously there's not all good in us, and that's why we hide. You know, and I think the balance of some of the darkness and the light. I think that's a constant struggle for all of us internally. Yeah. Well, you really tapped into something that goes sort of well beyond directly mm-hmm. anyway Passover, but also very important in uh, Jewish and rabbinic understanding. You know, if we are human. We are not created in some way perfect in the sense of that we will only do good. We are created in ways that every single moment we have choices to turn towards the good and the light. Um, The Talmud tells us that we are created with an inclination um, of good and an inclination of so-called bad or evil. That doesn't mean it, that inclination is itself Mm -hmm. evil. It just means we all have inclinations with us that turn towards the uh, greater good and towards perhaps a place uh, sometimes away from that. Maybe we might consider it a place of selfishness or whatever. But it also tells us the world couldn't function or wouldn't be built if it weren't for that. Both inclinations, a so-called selfish inclination, inclination to evil helps us perhaps drive us to do uh also great things. It says cities wouldn't be built and children wouldn't be born if it weren't for some of those inclinations. So we are we are created with all of it within us so that at all times we can make a choice to turn towards our better mm-hmm. selves. I think that, you know, yearly reminder of Passover is really beautiful, you know, because when we think about all of those things, the story that happened to like the Jewish people and what they endured and you know, the freedom and the faith and the role of God, mm-hmm. you know, it reminds me of self-cultivation. Mm. You know, it's only when we cultivate ourselves, when we learn that we cannot repeat those injustices, that we can actually do something with the freedom that was gained. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, a number of years ago, wow, it's going on 30 years, I guess. Um, and the Dalai Lama uh, invited uh, rabbis and Jewish leaders to meet with him in Dharamsala to... Um, 
explore what he felt uh, was uh, Jewish expertise at living in surviving in exile. Mm -hmm. um, we certainly have a history of maintaining our identity and surviving even in uh, an exile from our homeland and, and diaspora and so forth. And the Tibetans certainly needing to do that too. And it was interesting, the book that came out about it, it's based on a Buddhist expression, the jewel in the lotus. This is called the Jew in the Lotus. It's a <laughs> clever title. And it was written by a, um, a journalist. While he was Jewish, he was not especially connected with his religion, um, but he was following this group, and they were a very diverse group of rabbis and Jewish leaders and who had very different approaches in what they wanted to share with the Dalai Lama. My own particular teacher, Rabbi Zalman Schachter, um, one of the suggestions he was going to make is that the Tibetans evolve something similar to the to the Seder, to the Passover Seder, the Tibetan Seder, um, so that they can recount their history with each other around a table with symbolic foods and bringing the family and so forth. Uh, oftentimes, uh, in many traditions, certainly in, in aspects of Tibetan tradition, uh, a lot of this was done in, in a more monastic way, and uh, it could be very helpful to bring it around the family table and have everyone engaged in uh, telling the story, including a story of redemption. Because there is redemption in it. Uh, there were certainly many things that uh, the rabbis learned from the, from the Dalai Lama and had questions for him as well. It's a fascinating book I highly recommend, The Jew in the Lotus. That's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> but I really you know in reading about Passover and the symbolism, the symbols in the Seder table, it is mm -hmm. very beautiful. Yes. Like I read that there is a cup of salt water yeah. to represent the tears of those who suffered. That's right. You know, or uh, the matzah bread. That's right. What they had carried. Or one of the cups, the four cups, I believe, on the table, one of them represents Moses' sister. Was it Miriam? Miriam. In the well yes. mm -hmm. of water. Mm -hmm. Yes, it sounds like you've done your research. <laughs> there is everything on the table practically so laden mm -hmm. with symbolism. So, yes, there is a bowl of salt water, and one of the rituals is to dip the greens representing the newness in the in the tears as mm -hmm. well. We don't make our way forward sometimes without, um, you know, remembering the suffering that came along the way. Similarly, at another point, we take one of the cups of wine, the symbol of redemption and joy in our tradition, right? Wine is a symbol of joy. And we reduce it by 10 drops, um, one for each of the plagues, because the others had to suffer even if it was so-called justified, right? Others might have had to suffer for our freedom as well. And uh, everything is so laden with uh, symbolism. There's a traditionally the cup of an extra cup of wine for Elijah symbolizing messianic hopes and future redemption. And uh, in modern times, that got associated with the cup of Miriam, Moses' sister, who is always associated with water. Uh, throughout the Bible. So all these things, rich, rich symbolism. Uh, uh, one of the central pieces of the Seder table is what's called the Seder plate with different symbolic foods. Some of these that we just talked about, uh, bitter herbs, also to remind you of the bitterness of slavery. And then there's one called haroset, which is to represent the mortar, it is said. It look, it's a paste, but this is also very, very sweet and delicious and often gets mixed with the bitter. Um, so lots of those kinds of, of symbolism. The Seder plate 
found an opening in ancient times for creativity. So one of the things on the Seder plate was called the Zeroah, the shank bone, um, symbolizing the paschal lamb that was sacrificed. But the Talmud says if you didn't have access to that, or perhaps for other reasons, you could use a beet. Maybe it's because of the redness, the mm -hmm. blood, and so forth. But that opens the door, doesn't it, to all sorts of creativity. The modern uh, Seder has so many attempts to... to uh, update and to include. Mm -hmm. There were times, uh, or some seders, where a strawberry was added for the farm workers and an orange, uh, there's a whole history about that, to represent uh, women in leadership or some say LGBTQ in, in leadership positions as well. Um, some people uh, put rice because there is a distinction of traditions between uh, uh, European Jews and Middle Eastern Jews as to whether or not rice is one of those things that can be eaten on Passover. It's a whole discussion. But in other words, different things are included on the Seder plate now um, to represent all sorts of things that might be present for us this year. I'm certain that there will be something on the Seder plate to represent uh, the Ukrainians, perhaps a sunflower. Yeah. I know. I think that's so beautiful because I think with it's like the interpretation of history when we interpret what happened, mm -hmm. you know, it makes it so much relevant now so that we can continue to learn from it. Yeah. Like what you were saying, this is a very powerful imagery to me, but dipping the new greens into the salt water. Yeah. Because I think sometimes that's a huge problem when we don't remember our history and we repeat the same errors. Yes. Where there's so many more consequences when we repeat the same errors. Yeah, which we will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, all these things are symbolic to help us become better, but the reality is we're going to be human. We will continue to make mistakes, and we will continue to argue or dispute each other as to what it even represents. You know, people who uh, know me in my teachings, know I love to uh, cite of all things Monty Python, The Life of Brian. There's an, it's such an absurd movie, right? Mm -hmm. But one of my favorite scenes is when uh, this person who's mistaken for the Messiah, Brian, is running away from the adoring throngs and his sandal slips off and this the crowd gathers around the shoe and they lift it up and they say it's a sign yes it's a sign they all agree it's a sign and then they immediately start arguing what the sign means mm -hmm. <laughs> you know does it mean we move forward does it mean we stand firm what does the sign of a shoe even represent so a lot of times i think that happens with symbols i would like to believe that we still ultimately become better selves because of things like this and i think that's true you know for a, a a number of years we um, uh, had at our Seder, our community Seder, a pair of shoes that we put by the door to represent the refugees. There were so mm -hmm. many refugees over these past couple of years, and now we're seeing it again in a new context. And the pair of shoes that could represent the refugees. There's no end to the symbolism because there's no end uh, at this point to human suffering and to uh, the human capacity to make steps to heal and to redeem the world. Yeah. I find that really, like, um, interesting what you say about that Monty Python movie, The Signs, <laughs> you know? Because sometimes when I think of signs, like, I think it gets so confusing when so many people come in. And the only thing we can really go by is really, like, what does that sign mean to you? Mm -hmm. That's right. And just go with that. 
you know? That's so interesting you said that. It's a different thing that you need from someone else. This so-called wicked child, the challenging mm -hmm. child, often says, what does this mean to you? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, all of them really. And like maybe our nerves are ticked. Yeah. Because what does it you're mean supposed to, to look you? at it. Yeah. Yes. Like, you Tell know, me. It's bothering you. And yes. what does it mean to you? I love that. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yes. And that's how we're challenged all the time. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to us? So a lot of times there's this um, creative tension in Judaism between the uh, the singular, the individual, and the collective Many of our prayers are in the collective, our God and us and we, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there are other prayers, of course, that are in the singular. Um, so what does it mean to me? What does it mean to us collectively? You know, um, yeah, I love that. You know, there's a wonderful Tom Paxton song I used to sing, and I've been singing again in our services, uh, Peace Will Come. And one of the lines in the song says, my own life is all I can hope to control let my life be lived for the good and for the good of my soul and let it bring peace. So is that an individual or collective? It's doing the work I have. To, I can only do the work on myself, mm -hmm. right? And what does it mean? You know, there's a wonderful line in our rabbinic wisdom literature that's quite famous, actually. It says, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And if I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Now, interestingly, that three-part wisdom, uh, some people may leave out the middle part. <laughs> I remember actually, to his both credit and I would say to criticize at the same time, Ronald Reagan, may he rest in peace, quoted it without attribution, by the way, and says, if I am not for myself, it will be for me, and if not now, when? Mm -hmm. Very important, both those pieces. But let's not forget the middle part. And if I am only for myself, what am I? Right. So I have to do the work for myself and I have to do it knowing that it's for a greater good. Yeah. I think sometimes we forget our impact, you know, mm. and I think it's like when you do the work for yourself, even though there's so many things going on outside of us, I think that's the way in which we can all individually have impact on the bigger scale. Oh, beautiful. I, I yeah. so agree with you. And even our little choices make all the difference. You know, what we buy at the supermarket, right? Doesn't that affect, you know, all sorts of things in the greater good? Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, some people feel like, well, it's such a big thing going on over there. What can I do? Um, but we are all affected and our little lives, you know, definitely have a ripple effect out into the greater world. And, um, you know, we have different ways we can, we can be activists, or we can certainly be activists in our choices in day-to-day -day life, you know, what we choose to do with our time, with our energies, with our, um, with our loving kindness. Mm -hmm. right? And I really can't let go of the imagery of the cedar table because I find it so beautiful. And what you described earlier, it's like people are invited to the cedar table. Cedar. Cedar, sorry. Cedar. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> sorry. It's common. My, common my ignorance that's, there. Well, that's how it's written in English. It looks like cedar. Yeah. <laughs> but people yeah. are invited to the Seder table. Yeah. But I think it's bi-directional or multi-directional, you know? Like, you're invited in, but there's a purpose to it, and it emanates out. Mm, that's quite beautiful. Uh, you know, one of the things that's done at the Seder, besides, you know, traditionally inviting mm -hmm. guests... Um, 
is to have a uh, either a seat or certainly that extra cup for Elijah. Elijah mm -hmm. symbolizes so much, but definitely the the forgotten one or the one that we often don't recognize might be out there in the world holding us to a higher standard, uh, seeing if we're ready for the redemption of the world, for the 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 returning of greater good, for the coming of the Messiah, you know. Um, and so, yes, I think it uh, it's very, very symbolic what it means to be a guest, you know, to be a guest and a host at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, you know, one of the things that happens at the second night of the Seder is that we begin this 49-day count uh, to this other holiday. The holiday of Shavuot is the only one that is not uh, given a date in the Bible, and so we are bidden to count down to it. In other words, to anticipate. Mm -hmm. um, and this anticipation, you know, all our holidays, by the way, have agricultural connections and antecedents too, right? So all these were agriculturally based, but we also find deeper levels of meaning. So what does it mean to anticipate revelation from liberation, or to anticipate um, responsibility from freedom. So each of the days and each of the weeks are counted. And so as people count down from that second day towards the next holiday, um, in the Kabbalistic and mystical uh, literature, each of those weeks and days have um, deep meaning. They represent an emanation of God in the world. And the first one, the first of these seven weeks, the first of what's called the seven spherot, is called chesed, which means loving kindness. Mm -hmm. So Passover, the entire week of Passover, is embedded um, in a focus on chesed, of loving kindness. Loving kindness is not just a feeling. It is way feeling gets actualized as well into into action it's like living a way of living that's right it's mm -hmm. a way of loving and living mm -hmm. <laughs> i have read i don't know if this is true but i have read that the english word loving kindness was actually invented as a way of um translating the word chesed because not just love it's bringing it into living into action perhaps aloha might be a good translation, the idea of love, but that's really brought into uh, reaching out in some way. And so this whole first week of, uh, of the seven weeks is the week of Passover, and every day there is a prism through which we view the world. This prism is loving kindness. The second week, uh, there's a different prism. It's called Gevurah, it's strength, but it's strength not from power, but strength from being able to contain and channel loving kindness. Isn't that what real strength is? Yes, exactly. It says in the in rabbinic wisdom literature, who is strong but the one who can channel and contain their urges, right? So, you know, loving kindness wants to flow in all directions. It just wants to give, give, give. But it can't be given if it isn't channeled in a way that it can be received. Mm-hmm. You know, I cannot give you water if you're thirsty without some sort of container in which to channel it. Yeah. It reminds me also of like, in order to realize what real strength is, you know, it's, it's like that balance between like light and darkness, mm -hmm. you know, yes. that we are all not all light. And sometimes it takes strength and wisdom to kind of transform that or... 
Oh, I think what you just tapped into is very, uh, how you expressed mm-hmm. it was very wise. I think that was beautiful. And in fact, by the way, the third week is balance. Mm-hmm. It's called Tiferet, which usually is translated as beauty or sometimes glory. But the concept is a, a harmony, a balance between sort of this right and left dichotomy of kindness and strength, light and dark and all these things. Ultimately, it is a balance, uh, you know. Like maybe ultimately, maybe both will always exist, but to be aware and to balance it. Yes, because, you know, they're not necessarily negative. You know, Mm -hmm. we often think of dark as the negative. It's not. It's, It's a shadow, but it's essential. It's all part of the greater picture. It's all an expression of the light. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so yes, we need to find just the right ways to balance it and to live in harmony with these different sides of ourselves, with different sides of humanity and of creation itself. Um, but it's all part of the oneness, all part of the greater picture. And so these seven weeks, if we can spend a whole week, let's say, focusing on love and kindness, and then we spend a whole week every day focus on, for example, the way you so beautifully put what strength and really means, right? And each week we have a focus on, I won't go through all seven because I don't want to you know, overload or confuse people, but um, imagine that not only are there seven weeks, but there's seven days within the week. Mm-hmm. So for example, <clears throat> each week has within it a day where there is also a focus on loving kindness within that week's understanding. For example, what is loving kindness within a week of strength? What is loving kindness within a week of balance and harmony, etc.? So each week has that interplay of the of the week's focus and uh, and a daily focus. Are you following mm-hmm. me? So that there are forty nine prisms through which to view the world, so that you get to the fiftieth one beyond all of it. There you have revelation. So imagine if every week and every day for seven weeks you really do have this gorgeous focus, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of like ah, what is the aha? What is the aha that I get personally? And remember that at Sinai, what made Sinai so powerful uh, in um, our tradition is that it was a collective aha. We did that. We imagine an entire people getting a revelation at the same time, a great communal aha. That's incredible. That's powerful. That is really incredible. And forgive me if I'm like oversimplifying it, but like even with like the metaphor of the wicked child, right? Yeah. Sometimes a quick answer, I mean, this is not my answer. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes a quick answer could be like, oh, kill the kid. I mean, no one would kill the kid, but kill the wicked, right? Right, right. But that's not the answer. (laughs) Exactly. That is never the, that's never the right answer. And That's right. And that's why in the Haggadah it says, and to this child mm-hmm. you shall respond in a different way. Yeah. Because we, we have to have different responses to different um, types of personalities, different types of questions. Mm-hmm. different. And that's why I love that section because it is so challenging for us to think about it. Some people don't even like using that word. That's why I use the alienated child or sometimes the 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 child that uh, is uh, sees themselves outside of the of the collective, or the child that's just simply wondering what does all this truly mean in the world? Why is this even important? Mm-hmm. That's a legitimate question. There's so many Jews or whoever that will say, well, why should I bother doing this Passover seder? What does it really even mean, and how relevant is it out in the world? You know, and you can see how relevant it is. Look at this discussion. Yeah, imagine having a night once a year or a week 
that can inspire us to do this work. And all our holidays do that in some way, but Passover is so rich with symbolism and meaning and how we talk to each other. And like you said before, like, what does it mean to you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's fascinating because I think with Passover, you know, we, the story of freedom is so powerful. But how do we continue to anticipate revelation from liberation? Mm. How do we do it? That is yeah. a legitimate. How can we and yeah, how, how do we? we? Yeah. Well, I think that's why for us every year to have this seven-week focus is constant mind. You know, it gets richer and richer over the years as I, you know, I'm, getting older myself now and uh as i've gone through the years of this practice it's become one of the most powerful practices i have and it's unfortunate that perhaps most people don't know about it or do it uh, but those who do know how powerful and rich it is but even if at minimum you do nothing other than observe passover in some way and really engage it Get a decent Haggadah that will stimulate the questions. Get one that's focused on the kids if you want or focused on social justice mm -hmm. if you want. Whatever is the right one for you and, and your circle. Do it. Um, engage it. It is so powerful. Um, I think it has much to teach us, much to inspire us over the year. In fact, one of the first alternatives uh, Haggadahs that was found in the United States is called the Freedom Haggadah. Um, and it was written by a teacher of mine who's very, very involved in, his name is Arthur Wasco, many people know him, social justice issues to this day for decades and decades, whether it be climate change issues or issues of, of justice in this country or in the Middle East. I mean, there's no end to the application of what we can learn. It, we're constantly called, um, constantly being called. And maybe just by being open Mm -hmm. Beautiful. You know? Yeah. Maybe sometimes just by being open to it. Yeah. Like what a, being open to the message, open to the calling. Open to your signs. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. That open to the sign. You know, as Jacob saw, the, you know, the sacred is in this place. And I wasn't necessarily aware. How do I, like Hagar, get my eyes opened so I can be more aware? I have to, I have to do my part in it. I have to um, try. I have to be... Uh, cultivating uh, an openness to seeing where the sacred is manifesting and how it is calling me. Yeah. Rabbi Eli, thank you so much for such a powerful conversation. I'm always so moved by your thoughtfulness and really all the beauty that's in your mind. <laughs> thank uh, you so, and heart. Thank you so Michelle, much. Michelle, thank you for the work that you do and for your thoughtful questions and for uh, reaching out the way you do and for your openness. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And how can the listeners find you? Oh, uh, well, our website is easy. The letter C and the letter Y. It stands for our community's name, Chodesh Menu, Renew Our mm -hmm. Days. But if you use the letter C and then the letter Y and then spell out Santa Cruz, cysantacruz.com. We couldn't get the .org, so we got the .com. <laughs> we took what we could get. cysantacruz.com is probably the easiest way uh, to reach me and um, or our community or you know visit our website or reach out through the website oh and thank you so much for being such a beautiful figure in santa cruz thank you michelle thanks for listening to lost or found please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow dr michelle Choi on instagram Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. 
For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.